Welcome to Step Into Magic, your weekly online radio show on how to develop your psychic ability, deepen your spirituality, and find your own true purpose. Presented by acclaimed medical intuitive, Josephine Lang. This broadcast is a part of the Wisdom and Intuition Network. This is Anthony Taylor, your host, and on behalf of Josephine, I'll be taking your calls and questions. This week's topic is... What happens when we die? Welcome to the mystery. For anyone new to our show, Josephine has been a clairvoyant healer for more than 25 years. During that time, she's helped thousands of people from around the world to heal from hard to diagnose and chronic health issues. She's also been a teacher and spiritual mentor for hundreds of people who treasure her insights, courage and love. Thank you, Tony, so much, and hello, everyone. I'm so glad you've joined us. I really appreciate it. So the the accounts of near-death experiences have become so much more widely accessible to us through the Internet, and I just think that's such a wonderful thing because we can learn so much more about how many people have these kinds of experiences. And then, of course, there's also been recent research done on it, which has really helped to increase our understanding of what happens to us after we pass. And then along with these are numerous accounts of children who recall their past lives. They've sort of got a a little bit, all of this together has sort of opened up this window of our collective human awareness that lets us see not only, you know, what happens when we die, but also unravels a little bit of the mystery of what our consciousness experiences when we are between lives. But before I go into this topic any further, I always like to begin our show with our spiritual agreement, which was a gift to me from our friend and mentor, Jana Massey. And I ask that you all please join me in this agreement, if you will. And it goes like this. Together we acknowledge that everything that we think, that we say, and that we do at this time will be of the highest good. And together we ask for truth, the understanding of that truth, and the wisdom to use it in our lives. Can you Uh, all agree? I do. Thank you, Tony, very much. (laughs) Thank you. Josephine, um, after last week's show, we received um, lots of lovely emails. And um, one of them, um, um, our listener wrote, Thank you, Josephine. Love you. Uh, like a beautiful flower garden, announcing that love is everywhere you look, holding you and Frank in our hearts. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) And uh, we also received an email in response to the email that we sent out for tonight's show. And uh, this listener writes, Hi, Josephine. This will be a wonderful program, and the photo is so inviting. Love, 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 with blessings all around, Simone. Thank you, Simond. And so nice. It was. And then another message we received. Josephine and Tony, I can't tell you how many ways your love reaches out to us in the audience. We, have, we all have wonderful times and troubling times. I'm in the trough of a wave right now. And to hear your voices allows me some freedom and support so I can get on with my life. You have my unending love and deep appreciation. Claudia. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very sweet, Claudia. Thank you. We all have those tough times. They come along, you know. Hang in there. The the wave will rise again. And uh, another message from a listener in Northern California. 
And this listener writes, Step Into Magic helps me realize how many experiences I have been blessed with and helps me with getting a grip on my own spiritual awakening. That's an extremely important contribution that you're providing to me personally, and I thank you from the depths of my heart. Oh, wow. Thank you, too. I think that our experiences do really help us to, you know, get a grip on our own spiritual awakening. It's great. Maybe I'll share what my homework experience was from last week because it really gave me a, a wonderful feeling of gratefulness. Oh, please do. I did it while I was dozing off and I was in bed nearly asleep and I thought, oh, yes, that's right, the homework. And I thought, well, let me just see who would like to come. And I immediately got the image of that famous portrait of George Washington where he's got such rosy cheeks and has a sweet little smile. And I I realized that you know we have the freedom of speech here in America largely because of George Washington. And then I realized that many of the topics that I cover on this radio show would not be permitted in a significant number of the countries of the world. And this is because they're about claiming our personal power. So many governments in the world, the world round, you know, throughout time, have often prevented their individual citizens from standing in their truth. Also, you know, I'm a woman and an older woman, a crone. And my voice and thoughts in this venue are being heard and valued and shared widely. And part of the patriarchal mindset that has dominated so many of our world cultures has long felt that a mature woman has to say that what a mature woman has to say is very threatening to the status quo. And so, in this regard, I also have the suffragettes to thank for my freedom, you know, to openly be able to share my views. But it's largely because of George Washington and his devoted men, you know, who fought for freedom of speech that I'm allowed to share my thoughts today with all of you freely on the radio. And as George appeared to me in that moment, all in one instant, I realized all of this. And I thought, how grateful I am to him and his men, you know, and their cause at the beginning of our country's formation and I felt myself just really bathed in gratitude and I I just felt so grateful to him for all the hardships and all the difficulties that they went through and you know that through in their lives to make all of our lives better and then you know George with his rosy cheeks he kind of winked at me and the communication was complete and it just sort of dissolved and, and went away and it was something I realized that I, I hadn't put much thought to, and I was so grateful to George for coming to me to visit me and helping me to become more aware. So it's really with a, a kind of a grave and solemn humility that I share this story today and express my gratitude to all of those who've come before us, those who've paved the way for our freedoms today. I'm really, really grateful. How about you, Tony? Did you have any interesting experiences? Uh, well, I did, actually. Um, Maybe you'd be willing to share. Uh, yes, yeah, sure. Um, well, the person that I met uh, was Maya Angelou. Oh, wow. And, uh, and she gave me quite a lot of advice. And uh, the thing that I remember most that she said was, be someone who loves, be someone who cares. Oh, wow. That's really great. Yep. And then I... Uh, she gave me a hug, and then that was it. And then I, oh, it was me actually. I turned and 
walked away. Wow, that's a great visitation. That's so key to what our lives are about, really what our our experiences here is about here in the human body. God, that's a wonderful communication. How lovely. Yeah, well, thank thank you so much for that exit. I mean, I'm so glad I did it. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to start with what I found to be a very profound introduction for me into tonight's topic. And this happened when I was just like maybe in the first year in high school. My brother at the time was dating a woman. I think her name was Jen. And she was visiting family, and they were all sitting down to dinner. There was about a dozen of them at the table, and they were having a steak. Each were having a steak. And and she had, you know, cut a piece of meat and was chewing it and talking at the same time and swallowed, and it went down wrong, and it got wedged in her windpipe. And she suddenly, you know, realized that she was in trouble because she couldn't take a breath in or out. And and she was struggling for her life. And this was in the 70s, and it was before the time of 911 and, you know, emergency procedures. And it was before we had, you know, a lot of swimming pools with descriptions of how to do the Heimlich posted on the fences and all of that. So nobody really knew the first aid protocol for this. And she um, began to turn blue, and her eyes rolled up in her head, and she fell down on the floor next to her chair, and all of the family members were in great alarm. Some of them had come over and started slapping her on on the back because people knew about that, but to no avail wasn't enough. And so the two or three family members who were trying to do that, you know, were busy with that event and that part of the event, and several others were standing to the side and starting to cry, and her mother was desperately over, you know, flipping through the yellow pages of the phone book looking for the ambulance or for the hospital or for the who to call and and she was crying and the her tears were running down her face and she was sweating and so her sweaty fingers were smearing the ink in the phone book and and she was uh, very upset and meanwhile my brother's friend Jen she she suddenly found herself up in the top boughs of the oak tree out in the front yard there was a very large old oak and she was looking down at the house and this beautiful you know white wood framed home with a lawn out front and and she also was a part of that that house she could feel you know the the interior of the house she could feel beneath the house in the dirt beneath and she could feel above the house in the sky and up in the clouds she was a kind of part of all of that going on and she was also a part of the activity inside the house she was in her cousins and friends um, bodies as they were feeling anxious and concerned and crying she was in her mother's hands as she was passing through the pages of the yellow pages of the phone book and she was in the the people's you know bodies who were trying to slap her awake with pats on the back of the sh- of, on, on a, between her shoulder blades all of it and and then she was also her awareness she became aware of a friend who was down the street who was driving to come a late arrival and he had the radio playing and she could hear the sound of the music that was happening in his car and she could feel and sense his thoughts of what was going on in his head and then he pulled up and parked on the street right underneath that great tree that her presence was largely residing in. 
And then he walked casually to the front door, and he knocked, and he noticed that nobody was coming, and he kind of heard the commotion inside, and he thought, I better just go on in. And he went into the room, and there he saw her lying on the floor, and he happened to know the Heimlich maneuver, and he picked her up and gave her the big bear hug and you know held her arms in just the right position, I think it's crossed over the chest, and gave her the big squeeze, and out came flying the piece of steak, and then she vomited and she came zooming back from the tree right back into her body and then they got a hold of the ambulance by that time and whisked her off in an ambulance to the hospital and she was revived in a matter of a day or so and came back home and then I saw her over at my house and visited with her and she told me all about it and I was just astounded and it really left it naturally you can imagine a deep and lasting impression on me because it's such a a huge experience and it holds so many ramifications for us i mean it 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 shares with us what happens to us after we die and it it holds this tremendous experience of oneness that she had there and all of the love that she felt while she was up in the tree for herself and for her condition and she wasn't too worried about what was happening she felt cradled and comforted and curious and interested in her new experience all of it and I just thought, wow, that is really something. And there's a wonderful quote by Carlos Castaneda's, which Frank has very kindly made a slide for us. Maybe you could show that slide there, Tony, if you wouldn't mind. Certainly. And this one says, When you know that death is stalking you in every moment of your life, your life will become magical because your priorities will change. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's really great. It's so easy to forget, though, isn't it? Well, it is for me, perhaps not for you, but <laughs> I often, and when I have that sudden realization, yeah, this isn't forever, everything does change. And for me, often it does become more magical. And then I, I sort of care a lot more about what I'm doing and what I'm going to do. Yeah, me too. And I wish I had that awareness with me more of the time, I think. Yeah, and sometimes I think, you know, so this may be it. You know, sometimes I have images of doing more or accomplishing certain things or goals, and then sometimes I have to just stop and reflect and think, this, you know, if I was to die in this moment or tomorrow, this is it, and that's okay, and that's a wonderful thing, actually. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful position, really, to to have that experience. And though I haven't had one like that, I have had near-death experiences or times where I've nearly died is more accurate and a number of them and it does really reevaluate your priorities it really makes you realize how precious every moment is and 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 just how grateful we can be for every function of our a human experience it's really really something yes i mean i had a similar well not only the experience of the awareness of death but the other week uh, I suddenly had the experience of being alive, you know, much more. Oh, and that yeah. had the same thing about changing priorities. Like, you know, when you're really connected and appreciative of everything in the moment, yeah, your priorities also change. Very true. Yeah, excellent. So there was another story that a friend of mine told me. And this story happened to her father. And he had told her, and then... Uh, it had happened some 20 years earlier when she told me, and she told me it after he had actually passed for the second time because he'd had a, a near-death experience 20 years earlier. 
And he was, you know, her whole, most of her life that she knew her dad, he was kind of a grumpy guy. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And he was a Finnish carpenter. You know, he did cabinets and things and did a really nice job with them. Um, But he had lost his best friend in childhood in their teenage years. He never quite got over it. He always just kind of carried a chip over that experience that, you know, his best friend had been taken from him. And who knows what he felt about that, if he felt betrayed by God or the universe or whatever. But then there he was in his, you know, middle age or later middle age, and he, he died in a hospital after complications from a heart surgery. And it's not too surprising in a way that he wound up with a heart surgery because he was undoubtedly brokenhearted his whole life long. And his wife and his daughter were present with him when he died that first time, some 20 years prior. And, you know, the complications had been getting worse and things were snowballing and then finally he just expired. And when that happened, he found himself sailing over a meadow and I, I loved that image that, you know, there he was, like flying. And it was a meadow, it was spring meadow. It was full of flowers and, and it was lush and green and it was this gorgeous landscape, very natural, wild landscape. And he realized within a moment or two that his friend Michael, who had died, his name was Charlie, the, the man who died, and his, his friend Michael, who had died when they were teens, was right beside him, flying along. And it was like, Michael! And instantly they were down, standing in the meadow in a little, lovely little clear area with a little brook right next to them. And he was like, Michael, oh, you know, this is so great. How are you doing? And and, and they started talking, and, and Michael looked at him kind of sad, and he said, you know, too bad you, you missed the point of your life. And Charlie said, what do you mean? He said, too bad you didn't know that it's all about love. And Charlie suddenly realized in that communication that he had completely missed the boat, that even though he had lost one main love of his life, he hadn't really allowed himself through fear of loss or grief or whatever to really embrace the love that he could and did have, the love of his wife and his daughter. And and so he, he said, well, is it too late? And Michael said, no, there's still time. And so the you know he returned to the hospital bed and and his wife and um his daughter were out in the hall they were crying they were speaking with the doctor and there was a nurse that was inside the room who was you know unplugging the machines from Charlie's body and all of a sudden he you know returned to the hospital and he popped right back into his body and he opened his eyes and the, the nurse had her side turned to him because she was tending to turning off one of the machines and getting ready to wheel it out of the room and he grabbed her arm and he sat up and he said in a really loud voice I love you (laughs) (laughs) and the nurse screamed naturally and and uh, went running out of the room and then the wife and daughter came running in and they were in the uh, in the doctor and they were all so happy that he had come back and he was so healthy and you know, from that point on, he just completely regained his strength and his health over the next, you know, few weeks. And she said that, and I think she was in her young middle adulthood when that event occurred, and she said that from that moment on, he became the most loving person she ever knew, that he just was so careful to always express his love and and to really 
um, let people know how he felt and to love every moment and to love his life and to love his limbs and everything about life. And uh, you probably remember, I think a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned on the radio show, I think it was at Halloween, that I've heard that there's just two causes for death. And one is that we're so far off track that we have to recycle and start again. And another is that we've come here and we've done our work and we've completed what we needed to do. We've helped others to love more. We've done our loving ourselves. And Charlie's first death was one of those recycled deaths. And his second death, which happened 20 years later, was that he was done. He'd accomplished his purpose, which was to live a life of love. So with that, I asked Frank to make us a slide of that little um, thought there. And maybe you can show that slide for us, Tony. Certainly. And this one says, the two questions we are likely to be asked are how have you loved and how could you have loved more? I think that's such a wonderful thought for us to hold on to and to really be aware of. Well, that's really something, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, for me, that's a question, I guess, like or two questions I could hold in mind um, all the time. Yeah. 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 Anyway, Josephine, we've had a couple of messages come in, so I guess oh, it's a good time. I'd yes. quite like to share them. First of all, wonderful. we had um, a message from uh, Simone, and she writes, Heavenly greeting, greetings, Josephine and Tony. Looking forward to tonight's discussion. Oh, nice. My favorite book on the hereafter is The Afterlife of Billy Fingers. Oh. Love and Blessings, Simone. Great. Thanks for the recommendation. I haven't heard of that one. I'll I'll go ahead and see if I can't uh, check a copy out of the library. We have a very nice library here, and it has interlibrary loan, and I'll see if I can't get a copy, and I'd love to read that. Thanks, Simone. And uh, we also have a message from, I'm not sure if this is Terry or Ter, T-E-R-R-E. Is oh, that Terry? Yes, Terry, I think so. Terry, okay. And um, I believe that's a she, and she writes... Kubler-Ross says there are four levels of passage. By her measure, my NDE, near-death experience, at eight years old was the first level. Didn't meet anyone, didn't make any decisions, but did see the scene from above before being whisked into a stream of energy and unconditional love around creation in the few minutes I was unconscious. Had a profound effect on my life and beliefs. Curious what you think of her idea. Oh, absolutely. Yes, beautiful. And I'd love to hear more about her four levels of passage. I've I've heard about Kubler-Ross's, you know, the st- the five stages of grief, but I didn't realize that she also had four levels of passage, so I'm really interested in looking into that. And perhaps we'll get into a little bit more of that as we move into the show because there are a number of other near-death experiences that we'll be discussing tonight that talk about going uh, beyond just that rising above, which I think is is um, that that first step, and I love that whisked into love idea. <laughs> it's really great. Thank you, Terry, so much for writing in. Mm, it's similar great. to the uh, the one with the the, the stake and the Heimlich maneuver, right. isn't it? The going up, yeah, and being above and then looking down. Kind of an early stage, but yet a really profound stage because entering into that great oneness, you know, as yeah, she was the unconditional love, one with everything, that unconditional love. Yeah, really great. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. 
So my Aunt Rita, when she was in her older age, she slipped into a coma for a week, and everybody was wondering, you know, while she was in the coma, oh, how is Rita? She's still in the coma. Oh, my gosh. You know, there's that, what, what do we do with this situation? And then she came back, and then she began to recover and, and kind of got on with her life again. And she said, when she first came back, she said, you know, I went to see St. Peter at the Pearly Gates, she said, I got up there, and he looked at his list, and he said, Rita, your name's not here. <laughs> it's not go back. It's not your time. <laughs> I thought that was such a great story because clearly it was not her time, and so that's when she decided to go back and came back into her body. And her husband, my uncle, uh, Vernon, had died earlier, but but clearly Rita had some more loving to do, you know, <laughs> so she came back. And then there's uh, lots of other experiences that are quite common that we hear about, and maybe some of these will be some of those other levels that you mentioned, Terry, that uh, -Ross had, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had, uh, had described. And one of the first ones is that, a very common one, is that tunnel experience where you seem to have entered into a tunnel and you sort of have that um, that feeling of, what's going on here? You know, where am I? A little bit disoriented a little bit like oh and then there's often the light at the end of the tunnel and you think oh yeah okay go to the light that's a good idea and then um, often an additional experience that will happen is that we're greeted by loved ones who have passed away before us uh, others that we know who have made their transition into spirit and they will be standing and talking or, or greeting us or joining us or like with Charlie and Michael all of a sudden there was Michael flying right alongside of them Another one that's quite common is is the meeting of a number of religious figures, individuals that you know we hold in great homage, like the Buddha or Mary or Mother Teresa or or some of the saints uh, that have come before us. And you know I've often spoken in the past about Melon Thomas Benedict, and I do like to mention him uh, because he, he's had he had such a profound near death experience and one with so many different spiritual lessons associated with it. And I believe he died in 1984. And when he died, he had asked his hospice worker to please leave his body undisturbed for as long as possible. He had read the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, and he, thought he you know, they advised three days. And, of course, she knew she couldn't do that. But she did check all of his vital signs for several times, um, you know, for at least an hour. And it was quite clear that he was definitely had gone, had passed. And so then she called it in. She decided that she better call the authorities because that's one of the legalities that you know, we have in our country here. And so at some point, and I think it was like at least an hour, he, he popped back into his body. And he thought that he was going to be reborn into a baby's body. But there he was in his old Melon Thomas body. And he was so surprised. <laughs> but he was free of the disease that had killed him. And as the years went by, and it took a little while for him to really fully recall his experience on the other side, but he had a naturally very inquisitive mind, and so he kept asking questions, and and so he would say like, "So, what's with the tunnel?" You know, and and then a voice would sort of appear and say, "Well, you know, this 
The tunnel is about making a transition. It helps you to understand that you're going through a change. And, well, what's with the loved ones, you know, the deceased loved ones? Well, they are there to welcome you and to comfort you and to further let you perceive the idea that you have moved into the death state. And, you know, well, what, what about the religious figures? Well, these help you to understand that you're worthy of and a part of divine love, and it, and it lets us begin to embrace our own divinity on the other side. And then Mellon's account, as well as other accounts that I've come by, uh, speak of even further levels. There's, I've heard of a, a fountain of purification that can occur and um, some crystalline levels where we actually like enter into a crystal and feel the the way the light refracts through the clarity of the stone. And, and then there's quite often you hear of a void, a void of darkness um, through which is filled like an illuminating light can also sometimes be a part of the void. I actually have a, a recent memory of a past life experience that was in the void where it was just darkness, and the darkness was rich and comfortable and soothing. And it was a darkness as if it was light. It, there wasn't light present, but it was felt as if it felt that comforting, as if there was light there. And then there's also, we hear of areas of profoundly beautiful sound or color and this is one of the experiences that Eben Alexander, I'm sure some of you remember, he was the neuro neurosurgeon who made the cover of Newsweek magazine, and then he wrote a beautiful book called Proof of Heaven. Perhaps some of you have read it. But there, he found that you know he was a, a he found himself amidst a multitude of winged beings, and he heard. And I'll just quote this part from him. He heard a sound huge and booming like a glorious chant came down from above and I wondered if the winged beings were producing it again thinking about it later it occurred to me that the joy of these creatures as they soared along was such that they had to make this noise that if the joy didn't come out of them this way then they would simply not otherwise be able to contain it isn't that great fantastic <laughs> and he went on to say that the sound was palpable and almost material like a rain that you can feel on your skin but doesn't get you wet. Seeing and hearing were not separate in this place where I now was. I could hear the visual beauty of the I could hear the visual beauty of the silvery bodies of those scintillating beings above and I could see the surging joyful perfection of what they sang. Isn't that great? Mm. And I've heard of other accounts of that where it's uh, you know colors that you can hear and and um, sounds that you can see. So that's another apparent level that we often will go through. And he was a full week in a coma when he had this experience. He had died of meningitis. He had somehow he was, you know, a neurosurgeon working in a hospital and somehow he had contracted E. coli in his cerebral spinal fluid and that caused him to get a profound headache and then he went into the coma and then he was actually proclaimed brain dead. And he was brain dead for I think it was the full time, the seven days. And, you know, all of the all of his colleagues around him in the hospital, they were about to pull the plug. They had been discussing it. You know, it's like, well, this is a hopeless case, you know. And then he opened his eyes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a bit of a pattern, this, isn't it? Yes, it's a little bit of a pattern. <laughs> and I'll just read a little bit more about what he said because it's so interesting. He said, what I saw and learned there has placed me quite literally in a new world, a world where we are much more than our brains and bodies and where death is not the end of consciousness 
but rather a chapter in a vast and incalculably positive journey. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. And he went on to say that everything was distinct, yet everything was also a part of everything else, like the rich and intermingled designs on, the, on a Persian carpet or a butterfly's wing. And he described his experience. He said that he was, he felt like he was riding on a butterfly's wing uh, with all of those beautiful colors of the wing. And he said that there was a woman there. And then I'll read this part, too. He said, the woman's outfit was simple, like a peasant's, but its colors, powder blue, indigo, and pastel orange peach, had the same overwhelming, super vivid aliveness that everything else had. She looked up at me with a look that if you saw it for five seconds would make your whole life up to that point worth living. No matter what had happened in it so far, it was not a romantic look. It was not a look of friendship. It was a look that was somehow beyond all these, beyond all the different compartments of love that we have down here on earth. It was something higher, holding all of those other kinds of love within itself while at the same time being much bigger than all of them. Isn't that great? Mm. I just love that part. And then he said that she spoke to me, and I, I asked Frank if he would make a little slide of this, and he said, the message went through me like a wind. And this is what the slide says. And this is what she said to him. You are loved and cherished dearly forever. You have nothing to fear. There is nothing you can do wrong. Isn't that beautiful? Mm. And he said that the message that lay at the very heart of my journey, he said that that message lay at the very heart of his journey, that we're all loved and accepted unconditionally by a God, even more grand and unfathomably glorious than the one he'd learned about as a child. <laughs> so great. And uh, this, you know, I think it really coincides nicely with the teachings of Neil Donald Walsh, who's been doing such a wonderful job recently. He wrote a condensed version of his many book series, The Conversations with God. And uh, one of the first few messages, one of the first, well, he got many, many messages, but one of the first top 25 that he said that he, said that he got and I love what he does when he refers to God. He sort of says, she says, and that's <laughs> such, such a nice thing because using the feminine pronoun, um, just because as a woman I, I really welcome the, the um, inclusion in divinity. And so um, what Neil says that God says is that there is nothing that you have to do. There is much that you will do, but there is nothing that you have to do. And he goes on to say God wants nothing, needs nothing, commands nothing, demands nothing. Isn't that great? And that the reason to do anything is to create the grandest experience of who you are. So he's basically saying that it's not what you're doing, but who you're being. You know, are you being compassionate, loving, kind, truthful, faithful, devoted? And you know, are you enjoying life? Are you having fun and laughing and playing? Who are you? <laughs> I think that's such a a great way of looking at what God asks of us is what kind of being are we being? Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, and it's reminding me of the message that I received from Maya Angelou. Yes, absolutely, Tony. Yeah, yeah that was so great. Yeah, there's not much we have to do. <laughs> be someone who loves, be someone who cares. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, Josephine, we received a message uh, from a Jen about the homework. 
Oh, great. Okay. Hi, Josephine. I'm submitting my homework. Oh, lovely. About ten years ago in a meditation, I got images of cartoon characters. I refused to accept them. I can tell you now, I think I thought it was below me having cartoon characters in my meditation. And they did immediately go away. In my homework this week, I had massive amounts of cartoon characters. <laughs> and the message was, lighten up. <laughs> oh, that's a beautiful one. Uh, oh, Jen, I love it. And he goes on to say, and Josephine, you've helped me so much lighten up. Thank you, Jen. Oh, Jen, thank you so much for writing in. That is so great. That is a beautiful, beautiful message. And I really think that that's at the core of our spirituality. We need to have fun and play and laugh and lighten up and enjoy life. It's so worthy of our enjoyment. And, and uh, we so often get so serious and wrapped up in everything. And and it's just not any fun that way. <laughs> There's another near-death experience that I'd like to share. And this one was my favorite mentor and teacher, Peace Pilgrim. And this happened in the second year of her pilgrimage. You know, she walked 27,000 miles on foot for peace. And there's a beautiful book called Peace Pilgrim, Her Life and Work in Her Own Words, if you're curious to know more about her. And, and they've got a website for her. And and she had a really uh, profound near-death experience. And she said that whenever she thought that she had overcome a fear in her life, uh, as she especially in the early years of her pilgrimage, she was always tested a fear or a challenge of some sort. And this was her test for the fear of death. And she said that she had been walking and that she hadn't yet been offered food or shelter. As a true pilgrim, she would walk until she was offered uh, shelter and then fast until she was offered food. And that had not occurred on this day, and it was never usually a problem. She just would keep walking until that that, that usually occurred. And she said she usually never went more than four meals with, without a meal or, or a day or two without shelter. But on this particular occasion, she was out in a very uh, rural part of the nation. And she said that it had begun to get dark early, and there was an early snow that started to come in, and it came in fast and hard. And it it was very bitter cold quite suddenly, and it turned into a blizzard. And she wore just a very light tunic and shirt and pants and her light little, I think she had a little pair of Keds, you know, those light canvas shoes that she had and she said and I'll just quote her here she said there were no lights from any cars because there were no cars there were no lights from any houses because there were no houses and she said I could not tell if I was walking on the road or out onto a field somewhere I just kept plodding along and my feet were heavy in my lightweight canvas shoes and then she said that she suddenly came to a, a point in this experience where she started to feel a warmth filling her all over. And then she felt a sense of great inner peace. And she knew that everything would be all right. And she knew that that didn't matter whether she continued to serve in this lifetime or in another life. And then she said that she began to hear music that was like color and color that was like sound. Sound familiar? (laughs) Sounding very familiar. And then there was a group of people that she saw off in the distance in the snow. And um, she she recognized among them was a friend of hers who had died some time ago. And, and this friend began to walk toward her. And she was much younger than she had been when she had passed. And, and Peace said that she was not sure if she actually used words, but somehow she communicated to her, to, her, to this friend, you have come for me? 
But the woman shook her head and she said, no. And she motioned her back. And right then, Peace Pilgrim ran into the railing of a bridge. And she made her way down the snowy embankment. And and there, underneath the bridge, in the shelter from the storm, she found a large cardboard packing box. And it was filled with newspaper. And she went ahead and pulled some of it out and crept, got herself inside the box and pulled the newspaper around her and shut the box lid down. And she said that there she slept and and slept well all night long. And she said even there, in the middle of the snowstorm, shelter was provided. And then she awoke the next morning feeling relatively fine. And it was a beautiful sunny day. And and uh, she began her pilgrimage again. Well, that's a truly, <laughs> truly amazing story. Isn't it, though? And there's something, you know, so common about all these near-death experiences. I mean, it makes me wonder. Everyone seems to feel safe. Yeah. Everyone seems to feel loved. Yeah. And do you know of uh, any examples where people have had a different experience, or is this just the just the norm? Not that I've heard of. I think it's just the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure that there are ca- times where people, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with what our beliefs are in life. And so, you know, if we believe that death is the end, there might be a sense of a feeling of just the end. But I would or clinging think that, on, or, or clinging on, yeah. or something. But I think that as time moves along, these other experiences come into place. You know, um, I know that when my father died, he was a very committed atheist, and um, I asked my grandmother and my mother and my um, grandfather to help him with his passage because he was having a difficult passing. He'd been very profoundly affected by a stroke and couldn't move his body and was most uncomfortable and had lost probably close to half of his brain function. And um, right at the time that he died, it was raining outside and three small little blasts of lightning hit the, win- hit the window right outside the bed that, of the hospital room where he passed. And I just knew in an instant that that was my grandmother and my mother and my grandfather who had come for him. And so he would not probably be the type of person who would see a religious figure, but he certainly would see somebody that he loved, somebody who could greet him in that way. And, you know, there's a lot about our death that helps us to feel comforted. I was communing with my horse duchess a short while after she had passed, and I was really missing her, and, and I asked her how she was doing. And she said that she was fine, and then she added, you know, fear not, I'll be there to greet you when you cross over. And I I just can't tell you how wonderfully comforting it was to me. It gave me such a great sense of of relief and, and almost even a sense of, you know, loving expectation so that, you know, I feel like I'll be passing from one set of loving arms into another set of loving arms, or in my horse's case, a big, beautiful body full of horsiness and fur. <laughs> so it's really great. There's a, a wonderful st- story that Ramdas tells, and uh, he, he speaks about his communication that he had with uh, Emmanuel, who was a channeled energy that came through a woman named Pat Rodegast. And he said, you know, Emmanuel was sort of like his spook. And poor Ramdas, you know, when he first got started because of his history having been tossed out of his, you know, the university where he had taught, and, you know, his drug experimentation, they only let him work with dying people and prisoners. And so one of the things that uh, he did was he consulted with Emmanuel about the dying because 
um, you know, it's such an unknown territory for so many and, and, and uncomfortable for a lot of people to go through the dying process. It's often very hard to let go of the body. And so he said to Emmanuel, he said, you know, I work with a lot of dying people. What should I tell them about death? And Emmanuel said, Ramdas, tell them it's absolutely safe. Tell them it's like taking off a tight shoe. No, I love that. <laughs> I do too. Isn't that just great? It's just like, oh yeah, it's going to be easy when we finally do make it to that place. Mm, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Josephine, we've received um, uh, a message from Terry about the uh, uh, the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, Oh, great. And so she writes, On Life After Death, September 2004, by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Uh, on Life After Death is about the stages of passage after dying, with a foreword by Caroline Nace, oh. based on interviews with 20,000 people. Wow. And uh, she says there's also a revised edition published by her foundation in 2008 after her death. Wow. That is great. Thank you so much, Terry, for writing that in, because I'm definitely going to look that one up. 20,000 people is a huge uh, portion, uh, a huge sample of the population, a really wonderful um, group, large group to be able to make comparisons with. Mm-hmm. So that's great. We're going to learn a lot from that book. Thank you, Terry. <laughs> I welcome all of our listeners to check that one out, too. Revised in 2008, On Life After Death. Great. Um, also, that reminds me that we did receive um, an email earlier this month from a listener uh, about the passing of Dr. Masuru Imoto. Oh, yeah. And uh, he wrote a book called The Hidden Messages from Water. Beautiful book. And uh, he wrote Life is love, which is a gift from God and parents, and death is gratitude for going to a new dimension. Isn't that great? Mm. <laughs> it's truly wonderful. Well, just I've got two two requests for you. Okay. So one is a question, and the other is: Is there an exercise? Oh yes. Okay. So, um, well, we have a little bit of both. So, what's the question? Well, the question I was in my mind was. Uh, this exploration of death that we're currently involved in, I wanted to know how it ties in with the development of our psychic ability. Ah, uh, yes, okay. Well, you know, incidences of this nature are definitely in the realm of psychic experiences, like the story I told about my brother's girlfriend, knowing the thoughts in everyone else's head. You know, that's an example of telepathy. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Mm-hmm. And feeling their emotions, that's an example of empathy and being above the house and below the house at the same time. That's an experience of teleportation. And then when she was hearing the radio in the car down the street, that would be an example of clairaudience. Or seeing the friend coming, that's another example of clairvoyance. And those were all happening at the same time, which is an experience of oneness. And so it's from that place of oneness that we access our psychic ability. And these experiences show us that there is a telepathic transmission of knowledge and energy that doesn't really require any facility for the exchange. And what I find really interesting is that more and more people are acknowledging the ongoing relationships that they have with deceased loved ones or some sort of communication that they've received. In fact, I think that the Institute of Noetic Science reported a Q-form survey where nearly one in three people who have lost a loved one or a lost a spouse admitted to having an ongoing relationship with that person after they died. So that's a lot of people engaging regularly in paranormal experience. 
And what's really surprising to me is that culturally we still pretend that we don't have experience of this nature and that we deny our psychic ability. Mm. <laughs> isn't that something? Yeah, it's just uh, it's it's like it's a broad conception of psychic ability, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. like it encompasses so many different things. Yeah. From you know premonitions, déjà vus, in strong intuitions, you know, broadening out to this whole concept of oneness and you know, interconnectedness of everyone and everything. Yeah. Well, and so then um, the uh, an exercise, let's go ahead and just jump right into an exercise. Oh, good. I love it when we do yeah, an exercise. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> and this one is just, you know, who would you like to be greeted by when you pass over? And so let's just go ahead and take a moment and we'll just settle in and relax our bodies and close our eyes if you like and... And get good and comfortable. And, of course, if you're operating a motor vehicle like a car, just save this for later. You can do it anytime. It's a very simple, very easy exercise. And then just allow yourself to take a couple of relaxed and easy breaths. And then just ask yourself, who, who would I like to be greeted with, greeted by when I die? Who would it make me feel so comfortable to see there? Who would I really love to be with again? And then just let yourself receive the first thing that comes to your mind. And then allow the exercise to come to a close, knowing that it's highly likely that they will be there for you. And allow yourself to begin to stretch your body a little bit. Take a couple of another easy breaths and open your eyes if you like. And and then let yourself come back to your normal waking consciousness. How was that exercise for you, Tony? Well, I I really enjoyed it, as I always do. But I don't know if if it worked quite right for me because I didn't see one person. I saw several people. Great. And they're, they're all currently living. Oh, Wow, so, uh, <laughs> that's wonderful that they're all currently living. How great that you, you know, and so either you will go to greet them uh, if you pass before them, or they will come to greet you if uh, they pass before you. Mm-hmm. I went back and was greeted by one my old favorite dog when I was a kid, and it was so nice to see her again. She was really a sweetheart, and I loved her so. She slept with me every night. <laughs> So that's a nice thing. So I'll have both her and Duchess there when I go. Lovely. (laughs) Well, I don't know if we've got time, but um, I read an article in the Daily Telegraph, which is a really serious national newspaper in the UK. Oh, yeah. It's quite conservative. And it was just about this um, phenomenon, but looking at it from a a scientific perspective. I could just just read a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Scientists at the University of Southampton have spent four years examining more than 2,000 people who suffered cardiac arrests at 15 hospitals in the UK, US, and Austria. And they found that nearly 40% of people who survived described some kind of awareness during the time when they were clinically dead before their hearts were restarted. One man even recalled leaving his body entirely and watching his resuscitation from the corner of the room. Despite being unconscious and, in quotes, dead, for three minutes, the 57-year-old social worker from Southampton recounted the actions of the nursing staff in detail and described the sound of the machines. Hmm. 
We know the brain can't function when the heart has stopped beating, said Dr. Sam Parnia, a former research fellow at Southampton University, now at the State University of New York, who led the study. Mm. But in this case, conscious awareness appears to have continued for up to three minutes into the period when the heart wasn't beating, even though the brain typically shuts down within 20 to 30 seconds after the heart has stopped. Mm. The man described everything that had happened in the room, but importantly, he heard two bleeps from a machine that makes a noise at three-minute intervals, so we could time how long the experience lasted for. He seemed very credible, and everything that he said had happened to him had actually happened. <laughs> That's so great. So. <laughs> Wonderful. That's really a, a great account of the proof of our conscious existence beyond the time of death. Isn't that wonderful? And so, same with the other stories that we've been discussing tonight on this show, and that this—they all reveal to us this, you know, post-death consciousness experience, and that it progresses into a deeper shared experience of our divinity, our our merging with love, which I loved about these stories that we talked about tonight. And you know, I think that when we are born, we leave that divine consciousness, that oneness with everything. And we come into the body and the consciousness and the that individual identity of I am. And then when we die, we leave the I am and we're reunited into the oneness with the divinity once more. And death is not the end. And there's nothing to fear there. It's really a lovely, beautiful experience. And I'd just like to share one last little story which happened right here in our, our home, which was that our dear friend Maggie owned this home before us, and when she passed away, all of our, all of her friends and and neighbors, came to sit vigil with her, you know, to keep her company as she was dying. She was under hospice care, and and they were tending to, you know, her comfort, the palliative care, to see that she's comfortable as she was passing. And I came. I used to like to come in the late nights, and I think there were three nights where she was really, you know, where I was here with her by her side. And I think she died in the the deep, deep night at like two in the morning. So I missed that part. But our friend Harold was here for that. He was a neighbor two doors up. And as I was sitting with her on the last night, this profound thing began to happen. I'd usually, you know, get home after my gardening route, and I'd have some dinner and sort of settle in for a little bit, and then I'd come on out to, to Maggie's house and sit with her, and I'd usually get here around 10 and, and take that first night shift, like 9, 10 to 2 in the morning or something. And then I'd go home and go to sleep and go back out and garden the next day. And so while I was with her, she uh, would, you know, look at me and, and pat my hand and say, Oh, darling, I'm, I'm so glad you're here with me. It's so nice to have you by my side. And I'd say, oh, it's so nice to be with you, Maggie, and, you know, it's such a lovely love we share, you know. And then she'd sort of lapse out of consciousness a little bit and sort of slip almost into like a sleep state. And then suddenly she'd she'd sit up and she'd reach her arms out and she'd call out to, you know, her grandmama who had passed, you know, many years before her and to Arthur, her dearly beloved husband who had died before her also, and and clasp her hands lovingly to her chest and oh it's so wonderful to see you you know and then she'd have a moment where she'd kind of get overwhelmed and and sink back down and as if exhausted back onto the bed again and and take a couple of relaxed breaths you know and and kind of regain herself again and then she'd open her eyes up and she'd see me there and she'd say oh darling I'm so glad you're here with me <laughs> you know? mm. 
and it went on and on and um this kind of i felt like i was present for this amazing death party where i was here saying goodbye and they were there welcoming her it was such a beautiful beautiful moment and uh, i am so grateful to that experience to have had that and so grateful to maggie for for sharing her death with me i think that really it's helped me to see how beautiful death is how death can really be a wonderful experience for us all almost easier than birth because with birth we kind of have to come into school and start our lessons mm. <laughs> that's putting on the tight shoe is it <laughs> <laughs> rather than taking it off yeah well Josephine, on that beautiful thought, I'm sad to say that it is just about time for us to go. All right, then. So let me say that the link to next week's show can be found on Josephine's website at stepintomagic.com. Simply click on the top menu for radio. And if you have a question for us or would like to be included in our weekly newsletter, simply go to the contact page of Josephine's website at stepintomagic.com and send us a message. So, Josephine, are there any parting words that you'd like to say? Well, yes, there are, and thank you so much for that, Tony. I'd just like to finish with this slide that Frank so kindly made for us today, and this one says, it's a quote by one of my very, very favorite poets, who is Rabindranath Tagore, spelled T-A-G-O-R-E, and he said, Death is not extinguishing the light. It is only putting out the lamp because the dawn has come. Yeah, that's exquisite. Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. And I'm just so glad to say that culturally we're becoming more comfortable with death. You know, death has really come out of the closet. It was a taboo for so long. It was a taboo when my dad passed away. You know, I mean, when he was thinking, whenever he would think about death, he just couldn't do it. And so it's the time has come where we're inviting it out of the closet and letting letting death step into the light. So it's a really wonderful thing. I'm so glad to be alive for this time. And in closing, I'd like to thank all of you so very, very much for giving me the gift of your time. And I'd like to finish with this little blessing, which goes like this. As our gifts are given in love, they are received in love. And we honor their wise use and their increase for all concerned. And so it is. Thank you so much for that, Josephine. As always, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you on the radio. (laughs) And I trust that everyone listening has learned lots about what happens when we die. This has been show number ATA-1.14. And if you have enjoyed the show, we really hope that you will tell your friends. We look forward to having all of you join us again next week when Josephine will be talking about the art of letting go. Tony and I wish you all insight, wisdom, and magic as you pursue the journey of inner knowing. I hold you all in light and in love. Thank you so much for listening. This is Josephine Lang. Until next week, good night.
Thank mm-hmm. you.